0: If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. So tonight we've got another repeat guest, and that's Jonah McLean. I think this is about Jonah's eighth time on. He started off with handling a foal when it's first born. We've gone right through the handling process, and I've got to say, it's just been such a logical, progressive training. I've really enjoyed it, and we're up to the stage now. I think in our last training, someone mounted the horse, dismounted, and that was all, but now we're carrying that on a little bit further and in the same logical, progressive way, I'm sure, um, but John is going to talk about the 10 essentials when breaking in or starting young horses. How are you, John?
1: I'm very well. How are you, Glenis? Yeah. Are you
0: good? Yeah, very good. Very good. Great to talk to you. I'm really liking, I'm really enjoying this process, John. It's a process that I would have loved when I started, you know, doing stuff with young horses and, you know, sort of used to go through the whole thing, getting them from the sale and they had not been hand and bringing them and getting them ready and you know, going, I don't know whether I'll say breaking in or starting and then competing. Can you just clarify this whole breaking in, starting? Because the breaking in, you know, you hear about some stories about, and I know that, you know, what I was told when I was younger, um, you've got to break their spirit. But the way that you've just logically trained a young horse, you've really kept their character and kept the horses so they really understand what's going on. There's no broken spirits or anything like that. Can you tell us about the whole breaking in, starting process, what the correct terminology is? Well, it's
1: interesting because I'm not sure that there is a correct terminology. It depends on when you were born almost because, you know, traditionally it was always called breaking in um, when I was younger, certainly right up until about 10 or 15 years ago. And then there was a, you know, the welfare and the ethics side of things came into play and so now we call it starting young horses. I, I don't particularly personally have any problems with the term because of the way that I go about it. So mm-hmm. as you say, you're not breaking the horse's spirit as such. All you do is, is training them and finding out pretty much what do they know, what don't they know, and that's the start point. So that's really from, um, from our point of view, from an application science point of view, really making sure that we understand what the horse can do, but really most importantly what he can't do.
0: Okay. Okay. That certainly makes sense. Now I've got the first step here. So I'm going to go through the steps that you've sent me, but if you could explain them in in more detail, that would be great. The first one is to ensure, and I'm thinking about the last one we had, you know, where we have sort of finished off with the horse accepting, I think it was just, I can't even remember if it's just mounting, just getting the horse used to someone around and at a different height. But the first thing you've got is ensure all pressure release systems are intact and able to withstand changes in context. And you've got here, stop, go, back, park, and yield. That's right.
1: The pressure release systems, um, and and a lot of people don't understand the word negative reinforcement, but basically the pressure release systems enable us to be able to operate um, uh, all the things that we do on a horse, whether we're riding at stock work, dressage, jumping, or just for pleasure. Um, And that becomes, could you say, and use a, um, you know a humanistic sort of term, uh, an understanding between you and the horse as to what's required, and it always is delivered by some sort of pressure, some power. And although that pressure may be really, really subtle when the horse is more educated, and we call that a classical cue, so it might be just a balanced thing, um and especially in Western they really focus on that really, really subtle cues, that's pretty much where we want to go. But today, What we really want to focus on is how do we get to that point? So it doesn't matter whether you drive your horse or or whether you choose to um, break it in bareback just with a bridle like we do, or whether you um, are training a horse using a different system. It still all comes down to the same principle, and that is if the horse listens to the pressure and the pressure motivates the action because that's what pressure does, then the is not released until you get the first um, desirable outcome, which may be a step forward or a step back or a yield. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that at that point, we recognise the delay between when we applied the pressure and when we take it away, because that really tells us how much does the horse know. And traditionally, we call that resistance, and we use that in a negative way. I always use resistance in a positive way because, um, as I've said in previous interviews, Resistance is your opportunity to train the horse, and if you don't recognise the value of resistance, then you probably won't know what to do or how to go about um, making it better. So, and and that leads me to the next um, point, which is with pressure release systems, and then once we have the horse listening to an aid or a cue of some sort, and I, I will emphasise at this point, an aid or a cue, it is called an aid, which is singular. It's mm-hmm. not a multiple, so it needs to listen to a single aid at the time of the aid. And that's really, that's the level that we wish to get to to try and make ourselves safe and the welfare of the horse um, adequate. If the pressure is applied and at exactly the time you apply the aid, the horse begins to yield in whatever way you're asking it to do, then it's your responsibility, moral responsibility, and the welfare of the horse to remove the aid at exactly the time that the horse has given you um, a, a, the correct response, and it is that the release that trains it. The pressure only motivates the action, and and um, people are notoriously slow at being able to yield uh, to release the pressure once the horse has yielded. So, everything that we do, whether we're driving or whether we're lunging or everything, we're really trying to make sure that by the time we give the aid, whether it be a voice cue or whether it be uh, a physical cue by applying a rein or a leg or both legs, that we release the pressure at exactly the time of the action and then through repetition we consolidate that and then that becomes a predictable state.
0: Okay, okay. Now, I know we've talked a little bit about self-carriage before. Can you just re-explain, because we're going to self-check the self-carriage and the status of the AIDS, but just re-explain what self-carriage is.
1: Okay, well, self-carriage is where The horse maintains whatever you've asked them to do all by himself because you've trained him to do so. And horses don't naturally, I mean, I guess there are some horses that offer self carriage as a first reaction, but most horses that I've ridden and that I ride regularly, you have to train the self carriage state. Mm -hmm. And with with my younger pupils, and I've got pupils that are five years old right through to um, clients that are, you know, 75 and getting towards 80 that are riding. And I give the same example, and and the example is if the horse maintains the line or the speed or the turn or the stop or the halt or the park, whatever it is, then we can call that the self-carriage state because then the horse is doing all the work, not the rider. And that's really the definition is where the horse does all the work and the rider doesn't have to do anything. So the self-carriage state is a really powerful place to be, and for me, that's one of the biggest insurance packages I have in my in in my training um, from an equitation science background. Is that I think that that was one of the most powerful things that I've I've ever learned with horses was really the pursuing the self carriage state means that the preservation of self carriage enables you to be able then to then go to the next step. And i probably the best example is. Park. Let's say, for example, for the very first time in breaking a horse, we'd like to get on his back, and whether it be a saddle or bareback, it matters not. But the self-carriage state then, uh, the 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 emphasis is placed on park or halting uh, for for as long a period as you'd like. So without holding their mouth, and you're almost daring them to move, and then you apply your, uh, put your foot in the stirrup iron and then begin to get on and then you're permitting them to take a step or move at all. But The instant they take the very first step, then you simply put that leg back where it was and repeat the precise step that you've just done until that leg doesn't move. If you continue continue to do that and you're quick enough and um, not too abrupt, but certainly um, really quite efficient but calm in your actions, and that's probably about part of experience it comes down to, that if you can simply put that leg back and then do that again, within three to five goes, that horse won't try that again with that leg. He may try it with the other leg, so then you might have to do the same thing with the other leg and say, No, I want you to stand. But the value is really testing the self-carriage state of park by allowing him to move and then saying, No, that's not the correct answer. So it means that you're addressing the resistance straight away. It also means that the horse has got to provide another answer because the first. Trial and error process of that was incorrect, and that was made evident by the fact that there was pressure for the full duration of the resistance. So it becomes a really, really efficient way to train because you can target, you can target every football and every step um, that you have. So, and then you're able to get on the horse with a a, a contact that is. I'd say contact. It's actually probably less than a light contact, it's really just only the weight of the rein, but your left hand is ready while your left foot is in the stirrup iron and you get on and the horse then won't move. He he will just stand and so then as a reward, you can dismount, give him a scratch on the neck and um, repeat the process again.
0: Yeah, I just love the way that you explain it all, John. It's just logical. It makes it very good to understand that even in the very first stages of training, you're training the horse to do what you expect it to do. Okay. Yes. So number three, we've got repeat and consolidate, but this time with the horse, the bit in the horse's mouth. So is that how you do it? You know, you you um you do it first with the halter and then you do it with the bit?
1: Yes, and uh, the reason that I do it with the halter first is because if the pressure release systems in the halter are not sufficient, in other words, the horse won't um, stand and lead and turn and stop and reverse lightly from those pressures, then you're going to have your work cut out even more when you apply the bit in his mouth because he's already explored the profitability of resistance and that's what we don't want him to do. So. If we can have all those systems really calm, very predictable, able to withstand contextual changes such as location, et cetera, then we're ready to put the bit in his mouth mm. and then transfer the information that was coming from the nose band because that's the stop button in a head collar and the go button is the headpiece. Then we're, all we're doing is transferring that information from there to the mouth. And that's a really, really simple process because you have already – provided the horse with the um, capability of um, responding correctly to pressure in that area. So getting it to the mouth is a really, really simple step-by-step process. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, the the next one, which sort of leads into the next one, is beware the the important context and trying to mimic to the best, you know, best way we can, best to our ability, the sight and direction of the rain and the leak cue. So you're starting to talk now about leg cues que- as well as the reins.
1: That's right. So because now the only reason we're putting a, a bridle in the horse's mouth is so is that we're able to control it from a driving sense or a riding sense. And both of those systems require us to train the horse where he will go when we are not on the ground anymore. That's where we would like to end up, even though we might start off by driving, for example. So the driving process is really akin to you know, uh, training our horse to put a sulky or a cart or a jinker or whatever it may be, um, and the riding process, the go button is in a slightly different place. It's behind the girth. Now, it's not on the rump. So we have to be mindful of making sure that when we do make these changes to his um, uh, uh, um, gear, for example, we're putting a bridle on, that we're also aware that we have to be trying to replicate and duplicate where the go button wants to be should be for us to be able to ride him. So, for example, if I put a bridle on a horse, I won't put a bridle on a horse and then presume that all my groundwork will be intact when I get on him. I'll do things like put the reins over his over his head, hold the reins where I would be holding them if I was riding him, if I was astride him, and then find out whether my stop actually worked. And I can do that simply by holding the reins and then getting in to do a single reverse step. And that single reverse step is going to be a reflection of how well my stop stop button works. So it's really easy to do. So it's far more valuable to do something like that than it is to presume that it will work when you get on because the context of a person being above and on a horse is changing quite a few variables. So when we change those variables, that means that we have to be really sure that our safety and also his welfare is guaranteed by being really thorough.
0: If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look horsechats.com. And then the next one you've got, again, just a logical step, is testing the self-carriage of park, to so not just the self-carriage of park, but departing your horse, not allowing your horse to move, and being careful not to apply any lead signal accidentally.
1: Yes. Okay. So really um, what we're trying to do here is be able to get um, uh, get our horse to be able to listen to us while we're astride him and then be able to park. Now, park is something that is really important. We, should, we would have done this on the ground. We've discussed it on the ground before. Yes, we did. Where yeah. he's, not, he's not allowed to move his legs until we give him a physical cue to move. He's not allowed to follow us. Mm-hmm. And the reason we don't want him to follow us is because, simply put, he can't follow us when we're riding him anyway, and that, that would be a, an unfair change of context. It would also be unfair that if we'd ask him to stand while we um, let go of the reins and we have to walk over and grab our helmet or our whip or our gloves or a piece of gear and he follows us into the tack room. So we'd like to be able to make sure that wherever he's placed, he will actually stand there for longer and longer periods of time, making sure that if he does make a mistake by moving a foot or two, that we can quietly uh, but efficiently correct those steps and train him to stand whenever we place his legs in a square. So he's actually standing in a square. So we're going to do that same process when we're on him. So when we halt and his legs are approximately in a square, we're always going to find out whether he will stay. And if he will stay when we release all rain pressure and all leg pressure and do nothing else, mm-hmm. then if he, if he does stay, then that is a really good testament to how calm he is because horses that are anxious, fractious, um, scared or, or any of those factors, the very first thing that will leave or won't be evident will be he won't be able to stand still. He'll be just trying to move his legs and escape by running and that's what horses do. So it's a very, very good benchmark to find out how well in that context your horse is actually coping or not.
0: Yeah, right. From sort of the earlier horses, you were talking about that. We're just going on now. The habituation process can be started by practicing mounting. Now you've got to hear either from ground or a mounting block or bareback. Tell us a little bit. You know, are they all the same? Whether it's the ground, mounting block, bareback, saddled. Which one do we use in what context?
1: Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question, and I always say. You will use one of these contexts that will suit you. So a lot of people say, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to ride my horse back and I don't want to get on in bareback. And I say, well, I don't have a problem with that at all. So if you would like to only be riding your horse in the saddle, well, that's really, really good. Um, And then down the track, if you'd like to ride in bareback, we can cover that later. We don't have to do those things now. But the great thing about bareback is that you can feel any tension in your horse's body because now the surface area between you and the horse is completely uninterrupted by gear. And that's why I use, I use it as a bit of a thermometer to find out how relaxed the horse is and how much effort it took for the horse to habituate or become used to uh, me actually being on his back and touching his skin and laying all over him and dismounting and mounting from both sides. That will tell me a fair bit about how well the horse is accommodating that process and also will then tell me how well he might accommodate the process of a saddle. So it matters not which way you go about it as long as the qualities of the work stay intact. And the habituation process, and we've done that already with the horse because we've probably already had a rug on, we've probably already um, had him used to a farrier and a dentist and a vet and all those other processes. And if he will stand in park and he's much more likely to habituate to anything If you have a park button, then if you don't, that I can guarantee.
0: Yeah. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry... 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book imagine maybe one day you could be a guest on horse chats once we've got that then the next step again it's just logical keep your horse in park and then mimic the process of actual mounting and dismounting so instead of mounting or dismounting or doing something like it's you know to get used to it you're just gradually progressing to that smooth mount and dismount.
1: Exactly. And look, not everybody, I mean, I get on all my horses from the ground bareback when I'm breaking them in. I don't use a mounting block, but not everybody's like me and I don't expect them to be like me. But so I would say then if you would like to ride your horse bareback ultimately or you would like to do this work anyway, not necessarily ride him, but certainly get him used to you laying on him bareback at halt, for example, Mm -hmm. then get him used to parking beside a mounting block. Get him used to parking um, beside the mounting block everywhere and testing that he will stay there when you put him there and that he will stay there when you do it on the near side, on the offside. And then you can stand up on the mounting block and say, okay, now that I'm higher than you, uh, will you stay? Now that I'm high, higher than you on the offside, will you stay? Now can I groom you? while I'm standing on the mounting block, and, and I just use my hands or gloves or whatever and give him a good old scratch. So it actually becomes a really nice place for the horse to be. In fact, they almost, if, if you spend enough time doing this when you're laying on them or on the mounting block and scratching them, you can get them to go to sleep in a very short space of time if your park button is really good. And then you've got a horse that is completely habituated to the fact that you are now above him and beside him and you are also touching him. So the next step is then just laying on him. So you've still got control with your left hand with the reins um, and maybe both hands with the reins, uh, it matters not, as long as you've got independent control of your rein and also standing on the manning block. And you're able then to explore whether he is in fact staying there or, as I always say to people, the self-talk is the most important thing. Am I actually holding him here? And make sure that you're not. So then we can say, okay, well, he's standing here all by himself on the near side. I'm ready to go to the next step. And the next step is full weight bearing on the horse, lying across a horse, for example. Yeah. And you can do that on the near side and he stands there. And then once he understands that, then um, placing your leg over and sitting up is another step. So then we make sure those things are intact. Careful not to touch him with any accidental aids with your leg or any other part of your body. And we can smooth out. If we're doing a bareback, for example, then I always make sure that I mimic what I'm doing with my body with my hand before I do it. So, for example, I'm lying across the horse and I'm going to put my right leg over to the offside and then I'm going to sit up. So I always make sure that I sweep a path by grooming the horse exactly where my leg will go, and it will go over his near side hip, over his rump, over his offside hip, and then down to the side. So I do this big sweeping grooming pattern in, uh, in the manner where my leg would go, and you do that three or four times, and then you put your leg there, and the horse doesn't even notice it. Mm,
0: mm, mm. Now, this one, we talked about this a bit earlier, but it's a great reminder, and that's pressure motivates the reaction, release of pressure yep. trains it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and, and started all the way through this entire process, we have to be mindful of the principles and the principles of of training are are pretty becoming more and more universal now, which is a a great thing. But one of them is we have to be mindful of the fact that the pressure motivates the horse to do an action. But what really trains the horse to do it is the release. So we have to make sure we don't release too early or too late. Um, And if we release too early, then the horse won't actually do the action. So that means we're, we're, we're just about um, detraining the state that we wish for, so that's dangerous. Um, and if we release too late, then you won't connect what the correct answer is. And for the most nervous horses, this is the most critical part. If your release isn't really um, at exactly the time when the horse has given you the correct answer, then you will never, ever get to the self-carriage state because the horse will then um, continue on with the wrong answer because he doesn't know what removes the pressure.
0: Mm, mm, Yep, yep. Rewarding the horse by dismounting. How do we go about that? How do we set it up for the first time? Just speak about that a little bit.
1: So let's say continuing on, I'm mounting our horse that we'd like to ride bareback. So Mm. we've got him to the point where we're astride and we're sitting up. And then that, the next thing that we would like to be able to do is then be able to explore what happens when we dismount. And of course, dismount is another change of context where we will um, be suddenly moving our body to dismount near side or off side. It matters not. And you may get a fright with that. However, if we're laying on the horse and he's being really, really quite calm and his eyes are nice and doughy and his head carriage is nice and low and long, then Once he's done that for the very first time, you can reward him by saying, okay, now I'm only going to get on you for the first time for five or ten seconds laying across you, and then as soon as you're still and as soon as you're in park, I'm going to get off. And using that as a tool to be able to say, yes, that was the correct answer, because now you're releasing the pressure at the correct time, but you're also releasing the pressure of you laying on him at the right time. And then slowly you extend that period. So you can use dismounting as a very rewarding thing. And, um, you know, you can do it for all sorts of things, you know, whether you're jumping and your horse has done really, really, really well and you're so pleased with how he's gone. One of the best things you can do is dismount, give him a scratch and loosen the girth.
0: If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look horsechats.com. Now, just completing this habituation process, so we're, you know, mounting, dismounting from either side. You know, you've talked about dismounting as a reward, scratching your horse, getting them quiet, the mouth, the tail. Talk to us about the first step backwards.
1: Yes. The very first step backwards um, under saddle can also be a really difficult one sometimes because you will change the context and, and we really want to make sure, as I said, that the backward step, just a single backward step with one diagonal pair is all you're selecting from at the start. Or it may not even be a diagonal pair at that stage. It may be just uh, the near four, and then uh, later on the off hind. That doesn't matter if they're separated at the, in the beginning because you're looking for any correct answer to pressure. And you'll reward it as soon as he's done that and then you'll do it again until our diagonal pair. But the reason that they are this uh, really important is because now, in that context, we need to know that our stop button works because nearly 90% of the time, if the horse takes flight, he'll go frontwards. Mm-hmm. And the more you allow that flight response to occur, and the faster and quicker and further he can move his legs, the more he'll remember it. So the idea is to really not let flight take place um, for too long, over too long a distance, because then it will be stored by the horse. And of course, that's a, that's an innate process in the horse, but because you know, um, he's been preyed upon by other animals in the past. Mm. However, making sure that we have that and that step-back process, if there is going to be any confusion, then you can say, well, I need to jump off and go back over that and go back over. And you'll find that when you go back over by dismounting, holding both the reins under his chin, asking him to step back, there will be a delay. And there may not have been a delay 10 minutes ago when you checked it, but now we you've changed the context, there will be. So you go back over and say, now I just did that step at the same time uh, of the rain aid or at the same time as the bit aid and go through that again and then jump on again and do the same thing. If the horse continues to give you a resistance, then just get somebody to come along that knows exactly what you're talking about and do exactly the same and then you might get them to stand beside you. So they're actually mimicking that they're actually asking him to move on the ground. In fact, you're doing it, but the horse doesn't know that and he'll just move backwards.
0: Yes, yes. And I think that's, you know, we've sort of talked about the 10 essentials when breaking in and starting a young horse. But I've just jotted down a couple of notes here, so I just want to clarify this with you, yep. Um, You know, we've talked about the timing of the pressure and release and you said that resistance is, you know, it's a good opportunity to train. So is it the same aid if the horse gives a bigger resistance or a smaller resistance or is that proportional or can you talk to a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's not always an easy one for people to understand. And so really if the if the resistance is over a longer period, mm-hmm. then it's gonna take a greater amount of pressure to do it, especially if the horse is scared. Okay. So if the horse is really worried about a certain circumstance it's going to take a lot of pressure to motivate that and having been involved and currently and and in the past with horses in not very good circumstances, and I'm talking about my large animal rescue exposures, um, trying to get horses out of uh, ridiculous situations, car accidents and bogs and things like that. When they're really, really scared, it's hard to get them to do anything because their minds are actually all about flight. So then we have to go about and say, well, Well, how can I simplify? How can I break this down so he knows the answer? And it might be do nothing for 10 minutes, go and have a cup of tea, come back, and then say, okay, let's go back over this again. Don't worry about it. The fact of the matter is that when his arousal level is really, really high, it will take sometimes an obscene amount of pressure to be able to get the horse to react because he's either in pain or he's scared because both are producing the same thing. He's he's focused on that and escaping the the circumstance, and he's certainly not focused on what you're trying to do.
0: Okay, okay. Now, I know that, you you know, you keep talking about the rewarding. You're rewarding every good try with the release of pressure, so that's the reward, you know, whether it's dismount or scratch or rest break, whatever. Horse has given the right answer. You've reinforced that it's the correct answer, but the repetitions. You know, you're training your horse, so talk, to us about the repetitions, you know, if we've got repetitions in a row to train the horse, what sort of numbers are we looking at?
1: Yeah. Look, the, the repetitions, um, depending on the context, are going to need to be repeated until we can do five to seven really good ones in a row mm-hmm. and it's able to withstand a variety of contexts. So, for example, you know, uh, being able to – let's say, for example, we would like to get our horse to use being patted. And most horses well, – the horses don't pat – one another and so they have to become habituated to patting so in order to habituate them to patting you might scratch them pat them and then scratch them so for example you're then um basically uh, trying to make uh patting associative um to scratching is really what you're going to do so then when somebody walks up and pats your horse then he won't be afraid or if somebody um, claps for example and your horse gets scared then probably the best thing you can do is get them to clap until the horse has stopped and is in self-carriage. Then stop clapping, and that's what I get to do at my demonstrations. I say this horse will be really scared when when you all clap, and what I want you to do is keep clapping, not too loudly, but just at a nice quiet level. And the moment he stops and you see my rein release, you stop clapping. And in no time, it'll take two or three times. And the horse will also, he'll think that the thing that removes the clapping is when he stands still. Yes. So it doesn't take long. That's a value. And, of course, that's where a lot of people don't realize the importance of context. You only have to change little things with horses. And they're so much more observant than people are that you don't know really where it came from unless you can be really attentive to the changes of context and especially his interpretation of the context may not be the same as yours because they see things differently. They hear it at um, all sorts of different levels to us and they're, they're much more sensitive creatures to the environment than what we are.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, thinking about, you know, we've got to think about how carefully our aids are applied, but tell us about the location on the horse's body and how that's affected.
1: Yeah, so... Depending on, I mean, there's so many schools of thought in the education processes of, of a dressage horse or a, a, an eventing horse or a western horse. Um, but essentially, both um, all of us agree that if you use both legs, it means go, and if you pull both reins, it means stop, and if you pull the right rein, it means turn right and left, et cetera. But one of the things that um, has made a really, really big difference to me, again, it comes down to um, my ESI education is that if you can really make sure that you never apply the rein at the same time as your leg and you never apply a leg at the same time as the rein, Mm -hmm. then the horse is much likely to give you the right answer. So for example, if I'm turning my horse when I'm riding him um, on the arena or out in the paddock or wherever and he's a little bit slow, he starts to slow down in the turn, then I can do two things. I can release the rein and put more leg on or I continue to one more step of turn And then release the rein and then use my leg. Knowing full well next time what I should do, I should be riding a 50-cent piece now. I shouldn't be doing full turns. I should do a little turn. And the moment his legs go one step right, I release the pressure which rewards him. And then there'll be no deterioration or not as much deterioration in the tempo, nor will there be evidence of falling out. Because nearly every time a horse blows down, they like to fall in or fall out. Generally, falling out is slower, falling in, they tend to go shorter and faster. Um, So what we'd like to be able to do is then say, if you can turn, then I'll use my rein and the instant I do a little turn, I'll release that and then I might need to put, put my leg on a little and then go again and you might have to ride a series of single turns until you can get to the point where he's able to turn 90 degrees with three steps or two steps. Okay. So okay. breaking it.
0: yeah, yeah. And I know that you've said, you know, on the ground, whenever you're going to ride, you mimic whatever possible on the ground first to what you do under saddle.
1: That's right. Yep. So wherever possible you can mimic that, and, and, and that's a good point you've reminded me, and this is what I say to people that I'm training them to break in their own horses at clinics, is that lead your horse everywhere and train your horse everywhere that you, are, you wish to ride it. So mm-hmm. if you want to take him down, if you'd like to ride your horse on the beach, Train him down on the beach as well. Take him for a lead, lead him all the way down to the beach and do exactly what you're doing here in the yard and do it down the beach or in the main street or, or, or wherever you'd like to ride your horse. Yeah. So then the context of the environment is not all of a sudden shock and putting pressure on your aids. It is now reasonably known because you've, you've done quite a few repetitions and it's quite predictable. Uh, so then when you go and ride him, really the only change is you're now on him, not beside him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, just very obviously, change one thing at a time. So if you're going to do a big thing, you just break it down into smaller portions and do one at a time.
1: Yes. Remember, the only people that have decided that breaking in should take six weeks are the breakers themselves. Yeah. When really, if you look at the entire educational process, of starting a young horse, it should be more, more or less the evolution of the horse. And it matters not to the horse, but it probably matters to the outcome. If you took six months rather than six weeks, I can almost guarantee you the outcome will be twice as good. People are in way too much of a hurry, and I always wonder why we don't start them earlier. If we've only got six weeks, why don't we start them six weeks earlier and take 12 weeks?
0: Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Now talk to us about the rain signals because I know you've said before about the stop, turn, reverse. Tell us again about the rain signals, what's used for rain signals, what's used for leak signals.
1: Yes, and this is really my own. Can I say my own version of what we do with the rain signals? Having sure. ridden a lot of X-rays horses and horses that have, um, you know, had uh, problematic behaviours, is that the control of the shoulders is really um, something that is so important later like, on. When you can basically turn right and you can turn left, you can stop, go, park, and you can do all those things with the rein. The next part of the ra- part of the process, is the reins for me operate the shoulders, the neck, the head the flexion and the end of their head and the neck. So in other words, whether it be longitudinal flexion or lateral flexion, it's done with the rein. But I can also correct falling in and falling out with my rein. So we imagine that our reins are like railway tracks. Then we can get our horse to be able to stop falling in by simply closing the inside rein and then he moves his shoulder, our step, so then we take it off. So then it becomes an independent aid. It also means that if we And from a racehorse point of view, if a racehorse falls in and you use your inside leg and then you stop in the rain, I guarantee you 99% of the time the horse goes faster. So it's not his natural reaction to listen to an inside leg. So an inside leg or any leg to a next racehorse will mean faster. So we have to install an aid that is new and that is unknown and have it trained to the point where it actually doesn't produce fast, it produces something else, in this case, one lateral step to the left if he's falling right. Mm -hmm. Or the closure of the outside rein to stop falling left, rather than a gentle blend of the inside leg to the outside rein, which is a concept that horses... Um, haven't created but humans have and they hope to goodness and later on the horses can understand that because we're testing the self-carriage state of the inside rein I understand that but um, it's much more difficult for the naive horse to be able to get that right so it becomes a little bit of a a wrangling job between rein and the leg it's not very very clear so I use one or the other so that means everything that happens behind the shoulder is actually done with my leg so for example, and I'm going down the track very quickly here, but if I was doing a shoulder-in movement, then I simply move the shoulders um, a little bit to the right and prevent the um, hindquarter from following. I might place my right leg behind the girth if the hindquarter follows. If it doesn't follow, I don't do anything. But what I'd like to be able to do is make sure that I can independently move the shoulders compared to the hind quarters, and vice versa. So I don't link the two up. And when I say link the two up, I'm talking about leg yield here. Leg yield doesn't have any bend, it only has flexion. So what we want to try and do is make sure that in the beginning of the process for the horse, we don't confuse him by all of a sudden introducing bend when we haven't asked for it. I do it the other way around. I ask for independent control of the shoulders, left and right, independent control of the hind quarter, left and right, consolidate that. And then when he's ready to do a novice test, then I might link them together for a month or two just to do the novice test.
0: Okay. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look, horsechats.com. Okay. And I know that you've said before about never using rein and leg at the same time, use one before the other, uh, one after the other. That's an important point. Would you like to just talk about that again?
1: Yeah, that that is – that is Glenn probably one of the hardest things that all the writers have that are under my tuition um fine, and they always say it and I, I have them on headset so I can hear everything that they say to themselves. So it's really quite a valuable tool because they say, Oh, I felt myself using my leg with that. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really good. I like them give me that feedback because you know, I'm not a person that yells at people, I don't do yelling. Um, but when I when they when they're far away you have to yell, but with with the headsets and being so closely linked to the, to the rider, when they can feel that they're accidentally using their leg to try and the, uh, correct their line, for example, 90% of the time the correctional line is actually because of the shoulder. And you may feel it in the hindquarter, but I guarantee it was initiated by the, by the, by the shoulders first, even though the hindquarter may be a little bit more tangibly felt by the rider. So, and the best example of that is if the horse is falling right, and you allow him with your reins to um, drift to the right, and then you correct him with the reins, I guarantee you he'll be back on two tracks in no time because it was initiated by the shoulder. So it's really important we don't use leg and hand so he knows exactly what cue does what. So every cue with every part of, um, well, not every part of your body, but certainly every part of the reins and the leg systems has to be done one at a time so that the horse can be capable of giving you the multitude of answers that you're going to be installing later. Um, and the rein aid and the leg aid are equally complex, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't really be blended together until much later. People do it way too early. So, And it is something that we will ultimately be able to do where we use a little bit of rain and a little bit of leg, and I'm thinking more like half past where we have to correct the shoulder and then we have to correct the hindquarter. But once again, it's, it's still possible to be able to do one, then the other, one, then the other, depending on what the horse's evasion to the movement are or its resistances are to the movement. Mm-hmm. But there's, I don't see any place at all in being able to use your leg and have the horse going um, to, uh, up into the contact because really what we're talking about is basically all we need is the level of pressure to be detectable by the horse's mouth from the weight of the rain, and then that is it, and that shouldn't change, whether it be an upward transition or a down. So that's a really important point, that we just keep them separated so that from his welfare point of view, he can give you the answer so then you can reduce the amount of pressure and say, that's exactly right, that's what I want.
0: Yeah, 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 okay. Now, something else that becomes more of a safety issue, you know, about the horse, commonly using the forward steps to escape. And it's not so much that they're using the forward steps to escape, but you're saying if it's allowed to go on, it could manifest into something more determined, you know, and I'm thinking about, you know, little kids with horses they can't control and how important that sort of stop, go, park, how important it is. But um, can you talk a bit about how if the forward steps are allowed to just be bypassed, how it can manifest into something more?
1: Probably the best example of this, Clarence, is riding a horse that's actually had a fairly substantial racing career, okay. where he he he's been allowed to, um, been allowed to exhibit high flight responses under heavy mouth pressure and also heavy leg pressure, because jockeys, when they ride horses, have to use a bridge to be able to restrain restrain the horse. It takes that amount of force to slow down the flight response and contain it to make it horse competitive. But by the same token, when we recycle the horse and we bring him into the equestrian community, we don't want him to um, be heavy. So the whole time, from an X-race horse point of view, or if he's had a fright, he can learn very, very quickly in a single trial um, situation, by running um, and escaping really quickly, in one go, what he doesn't want to do. And the best one here, is if you've loaded a horse into the float and he bangs his head on the float and then he runs out and then he runs away and gives you a rope burn, you will have great trouble getting that horse back into the float again. Mm-hmm. And it only took one time. So that that's where the danger is, is allowing the horse to escape with um, uh, large numbers of steps really fast and producing a lot of distance between the incident and where he is now will be uh, uh, etched in his mind and it will take considerable training to to retrieve a different response for that.
0: Okay, okay. So we really need to focus on the stop-go path to make sure that the yep. horse is under at a really basic level. The horse needs to understand that.
1: Yes, that's right. And 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 of course, there are so many circumstances in which we ride our horses in later on. Um, whether it be our own horse that we've broken in, or we've taken the horse off the track, or we've um, bred in and broken our own horse that he's now got to be able to accommodate all those things like other horses coming towards him, other horses passing him, other horses uh, coming up behind him, for example, and then be able to have all these systems intact. So that's why we have to be really careful. And I always say to people, if you want to get your horse used to other horses, just take him to an adult riding club, a really low-key event, and see how that goes first. Because you Mm. don't really know. None of us can predict exactly what he will do. We can't see the world out of his eyes and that way we're able to get a little bit of a handle on what his most common resistances are, and then we can set about a plan of what we, what we can do as trainers, as riders, to be able to combat that should it manifest itself in a dangerous way.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great, John. You know, the information that you give within a short podcast is just amazing, so I'm certainly looking forward to the next one. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll talk about that very soon. And I've just got to say thank you, you know, thank you so much for coming to talking to us, for answering my questions and just clarifying a few things. And, um, yeah, just going over stuff in such detail. It's been really good and hopefully it's helped, you know, not just the listeners but the listeners who are teaching and then go on and help other horses and other people and, um, you know, the whole thing can just expand. And I've got to say, you know, long way since since breaking in was to break the horse's spirit. So... Thank you for your training, and thank you for, for coming on the show.
1: And I think that that's right, Glenys, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate your time as well. But I think the underlying comment I'd like to leave with everybody is that when you do apply pressure to it, is it do you think he knows the answer? And if he mm. doesn't know the answer, you realize it in quite a fairly short space of time because there will be no reaction. Well, there'll be too much of a reaction, but then we have to think, what can we do to make the answer simpler? So I'm glad I got that message across today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And now, Jonna, for people to contact you directly, they'll be on your page at horsechats.com if you just search for Jonna, I think even search for Jonathan, search for McLean, you'll find those details. But, but Jonna, if people would like to contact you direct, what's the best way?
1: oh look i've got a train to win facebook page where you can go onto that and and um have a look at that and also i've got an email address which is john at gmail dot com at gmail dot com and um Uh, and then also my website as well, which is the Train to Win website, which lists all my clinics and what locations I'm doing those in. Uh, You know, go everywhere from uh, Wellington to Perth to Melbourne to uh, Tasmania as well, so they can have a look at that. That's probably the best way.
0: All right. So that's Australia and New Zealand. Now, if people would like to contact you from the Northern Hemisphere, from other countries, from Asia, you're available if they've got the numbers. Is that right?
1: Yeah, look, I don't have any problems. I've travelled um, lots and lots of places, Malaysia and, and Kuwait and, and, and um, even further north than that. But I have no problems. If a, if the work is there and I'm able to um, work that in with my schedule, I have no problems with that. It just takes a greater degree of planning because you're away a little bit longer, that's all. Um,
0: perfect. All right, thanks very much again for your time, Jonna, and looking forward to the next
1: chat. I am too. Thanks, Gwyneth. I appreciate it.